Guys, welcome back uh, to our series on the Summer of Psalms. And uh, if you're just joining us, um, we, are, we are taking, for us, for us, every summer is the Summer of Psalms. Every, every summer is Summer of Psalms for us. So uh, what we're doing is we're committing like the next decade or so, or maybe more, to uh, just to take a dozen or so Psalms every year and just allow God to renew and refresh our prayer life. Uh, the theologian Walter Bruggeman says this about the Psalms. He says, the movement and meeting of God with us is indeed a speech event in which new humanness is evoked among us. So being attentive to language means cultivating the candid imagination to bring our own experience to the Psalms and permitting it to be disciplined by the speech of the Psalms. And conversely, it means letting the Psalms address us and having that language reshape our sensitivities and fill our minds with new pictures and images that may redirect our lives. So that's what we want to do. When we're talking about the Psalms, when we are praying through the Psalms, just, just reading the Psalms, not just hearing the Psalms, not just singing the Psalms, but praying the Psalms, we want to let the Psalms address us to bring our experiences and our emotions and our relationships to God through the Psalms and let those songs and poems and prayers reshape our attention and redirect our devotions toward God's hope and the intentions that he has for humanity. And we call this just simply walking in the way of Jesus or becoming followers of Jesus and making followers of Jesus. See how it all connects? Is that amazing, right? All right. This morning is part two of a longer series, longer teaching on, on God of the, the least. So what we're asking, the question that we're addressing, and this is covering both Psalm 9 and Psalm 10, because Psalm 9 and 10 are one interconnected, lengthier psalm divided into two, uh, but, but we are asking this question of how does God respond to injustice? How does God move when those threats to human dignity are made? David's psalm here addresses both the strong and the weak, the hunter and the hunted, those who proudly, arrogantly say there is no God, and those whose devastations and humiliations provoke them to wonder the same thing. Now, one of our core values at, at First Baptist Church is that we are real, that we are real. And, and what that means is that not every moment of your life is going to be filled with rainbows and unicorns. I know, why not? All of my daughters would say that. Why, why isn't it? But it's not. So why would we teach that way? Why would we act that way? Why would we present ourselves as if that is our life when no one, if actually pressed on the issue, would or should believe that, truly? Because the reality is that injustice happens. And doubt creeps in and, and people are oppressed and marginalized and taken advantage of. And we feel helpless, powerless to stop it. Or we numb ourselves instead of, uh, uh, of, of, of that feeling with self-indulgences that soothe our, our psyche. Things like drugs, sex, cell phones, and religion. Yes, even religion which might be perhaps the most self-indulgent of them all. So we don't back down from passages like this. We don't pretend that injustice never happens, nor do we self-medicate to ease the guilt and shame and frustration. Instead, we look to the Psalms like this one to stir up our hope 
to see God as the king that he is and to process through our fears and our doubts and our hurts. And we find trust at the end. So I'm going to pray and then we are going to dig into Psalm 10. Father, we just ask that this morning you would open our eyes to see. Open our hearts to feel and to sense those areas where we look out into the world or when we look into our own lives and we say something is not right with this picture. God, in those moments that we don't understand or we can't comprehend or we can't logically see the way through, when, it, when that doubt, when that suffering, when that hurt clouds our minds and our vision forward, I pray that Psalm 10 is a, is a roadmap for us that guides us through shadowy valleys and dark ways. So we just thank you and we just pray for, for vigilance this morning <laughs> to hear your words. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week, the, the main idea of Psalm 9 was centered around this idea that, that God is a good and righteous judge. And anytime you go to see a judge, if you've ever gone to see a judge or sat in a courtroom or been on a jury in any way, you want to see a good and fair ruling. I mean, you want your voice heard, but, but more important, you hope for vindication. And while we should not always assume that we are in the right, that our motives are always pure and good, we can know that we have a judge who always rules fairly, who always rules for good, and who always advocates for the restoration and redemption of human dignity, especially when that image of God is threatened by forces that are outside of the good ways of God. God is not just a God of love or a God of strength or a God of power. He is also a God of justice. Now, we used Ken Wistma's definition of justice last week, and so we're going to repeat it again today just so we have a framework against which all of this can sit. Justice involves harmony, flourishing, and fairness. Harmony, flourishing, and and fairness, and it is based on the image of God in every person. Latin, the imago dei, that grants all people inalienable dignity and infinite worth. Psalm 9 ended with this, this plea to God where he is asking that Yahweh would rise up and not let mere humans prevail. And the truth that David asserts here is that when humans take on the responsibility of God to determine right and wrong for themselves as if that is somehow some sort of right that we have, it is not, but it is one that we often take upon ourselves. We tend to screw that up, plain and simple. We don't, op and the reason why is that we don't naturally tend to operate out of compassion and grace and humility. The core desires of our hearts don't naturally seek the, the dignity of other human beings. Instead, we seek after the promotion and, and raising up of ourselves, even if that means we roll over others along the way. Humans, when left to their own devices inevitably advance a human kingdom agenda. And rather than furthering the human project and cultivating more good things, we destroy it by upending the good order that God has given us. So let me ask you this. How many, how many like utopian society movies have you ever seen? Where like throughout the entire movie, everything is great. Like, there's no problems, there's no, there's no hardship, there's no sufferings, there's no doubts, there's no frustrations, right? There's no slip-ups or stumbles, there's no mistakes, it's just perfect all the way through. How many movies have you seen? 
You've seen a lot? I've seen zero. I have never seen a utopian movie where nothing goes wrong the whole time. Why? Because it's boring. I mean, at least from a movie standpoint, it's boring, right? Like, no, who wants to see a movie where nothing bad ever happens, right? You're like, this is great. I wonder when the, the, when's the shoe going to fall and it never falls the whole time? And like an hour and a half, you're like, well, that was nice, but I don't know. Could have just watched the first five minutes and that would have been it. Like, I, I got the gist of it. Everything's great, right? Like, there is no reason to have a, a movie where everything is always utopian. And in fact, most of the time, those movies are what? They're dystopian movies, right? They start with this idea of utopia, and then suddenly they drop off and they fall into this sort of like chaos and madness, and everything is like there's like this secret war, or you're being like upended by things, or people are dying in the background and you don't know about it. Why does that happen? The concept that humans will coexist peacefully, mutually, self-sacrificially for their good and for the good of others is so beyond us. It is simply because we know human beings and we know that this dream, if this dream of utopia is left to us to achieve, then we're just going to blow it up, right? We're just going to tank the whole thing if it's left to us to reach that goal of human perfection and social unity and harmony. We need more than a mere human to rule and reign for us. Now that's David's cry at the end of Psalm 9. And so now let's see how that's going in Psalm 10. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Psalm 10. If you don't have a Bible, we, uh, we might not have any in the back. Share with your neighbor. Um, Share with your neighbor. It's also going to be up on the screen. Uh, or if you're, if you're one of those geeky people, you can pull out your phone. Um, if, by the way, just total aside, but if, you are, if you're like interested in reading the Bible on your phone, uh, one, one uh, Bible that I'd recommend is Faith Life. Uh, Faith Life Bible. And uh, the reason why I recommend it is it's actually integrated with our sermons. So anytime a, anytime a scripture slide pops up, It'll actually sync up with your phone and pop up and allow you to follow along. So really fancy and kind of geeky and technical. So uh, if you want to do that, let me know. I'll, help, I'll hook you up, right? It'll be great. Okay. That was totally aside. We're going to throw that off, and we're going to go right into Psalm 10. Here we go. All right. So David's psalm is going to provide us with this way to pray to the God of the least through the injustice and the oppression that we see in the world and that we experience, not just in the world, but also in our own lives. And so there are four parts to this prayer. And, and the first part is sharing your concerns. Share your concerns. And, and I love that, that, interestingly, David starts with the word, why? Word, why? Lord, Yahweh. Why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked relentlessly pursue their victims. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. For the wicked one boasts about his own cravings. The one who is greedy curses and despises Yahweh. Now I know that this is not a good thing for a pastor to say. We're not supposed to question things. We're not supposed to invite doubt and struggle. We're supposed to be that like solid rock of stability and, and certainty. And you come to me and you go, man, I'm struggling with doubt. And I'm like, what? well, why don't you just have more faith or something like that? Like, here, let me, let me help restore your doubt. Help me just set that aside so you won't struggle with things anymore. We're supposed to, we're, that's the, or the expectation of us pastors. But here's the thing. I, I love that David puts God on the stand. That he asks this why question before God. See, there's this tendency among us human beings to elevate our heroes to this like superhuman status. 
And so we view only the highlight reels of their lives. There's no pain, no hurt, no emotional turmoil, no doubt or desperation, no failure. They are untouchable. And in fact, it's sort of shocking when we find out that actually those heroes of ours are actually just messed up human beings like everybody else. The thing about heroes is that they give us something to aspire to. They, they, They feed into that dream that says, you know, maybe someday I won't struggle anymore like they don't struggle anymore. I'll, I'll, have, I'll finally have a healthy marriage like they do. I'll finally have a satisfying career like it looks like they do. I'll never hurt anyone again and no one will ever hurt me. When we, when we venerate those superheroes, it's because we want to be like them. We want a life that is free of drama and hardship and pain and suffering. We want the highlight reel. And I think we, we do this. We, we venerate those, those personal or familial or celebrity or biblical heroes to this, this status of, of flawless, miraculous saints and, and we pray that we would be like them or we teach our kids to live up to these false ideals and impossible standards and we write countless self-help books that just further, ultimately, the narrative of our own self-inadequacies. And that's why we need to hear David's cry. It's not that the psalmist is giving us permission to complain. I don't think that's what David is doing here. It's not that, and that's not what I appreciate about it. It's, it's that he's not, he's acknowledging when he says, why, Yahweh, are I... Are you standing so far away when I'm right here and the struggle is here and you're not here and these guys are just getting away with everything? We need to hear that he is not Superman. That David, oh, David of the Bible is not flawless. That he feels pain and hurt and loneliness and doubt and discouragement. Oh, yeah, I feel those things too. So do you. God, why do you seem so distant from me in my situation sometimes? I'm looking around and I'm seeing people who are hurting and in pain. My friends are getting divorced or they're struggling with addictions. And watching the news doesn't make it any better at all. I just can't keep up this this optimistic Christian shtick any longer. But again, we need these David moments of injustice awareness. Tim Keller makes this observation. He says, have you ever thought about the fact that you do not notice your body until there's something wrong with it? Is that true for you? You don't notice your body until suddenly there's something wrong with it. When we are walking around, we're not usually thinking how fantastic our toes are feeling. Or how brilliantly our elbows are working today. We would only think like that if there had previously been something wrong with them. That is because the parts of our body only draw them attention to themselves if there is something wrong with them. And what David reminds us here is that you will encounter these moments where evil seems to have the upper hand where selfishness seems to be working and betrayal and backstabbing seem to be the norm, the expected, the assumed. Where the only way to get ahead is to get yours and run over anyone who stands in your way. Take what you want, when you want, however you want, and don't let anyone, not even God, stand in your way. These moments are meant to discourage you. And if they don't discourage you, then then that's something wrong. That injustice that's in the world, it probably comes from, from within us and not from without. The moment that you realize God seems far away is the moment that you stop relying on that false sense of security 
and you start looking for something more real. Injustice, that, that unfairness and discord, that loss of humanity and dignity and worth, whether it is sudden and, and, and quick or it is systemic and drawn out. It draws our attention to our need for a rescuer. A rescuer who is able to take those things that were intended for evil and uses them for good. So the first part of our prayer when we are dealing with oppression is to share our concerns. God, why? And then David takes us to this long section, well, probably the longest section in the entire uh, psalm, where, where he just describes the way of the wicked and what happens when God feels so distant. This is not a sunshine and rainbows psalm, everybody. So to follow David's template, the first step, share your concerns. The second step, name your oppression. Naming your oppression. Verse 4, in all his scheming, the wicked person arrogantly thinks there's no accountability since there's no God. His ways are always secure. Your lofty judgments have no effect on him. He scoffs at all his adversaries. He says to himself, I will never be moved from generation to generation without calamity. Cursing, deceit, and, and violence fill his mouth. Trouble and malice are under his tongue. He waits in ambush near settlements. He kills the innocent in secret places. His eyes are on the lookout for the helpless. He lurks in secret like a lion in a thicket. He lurks in order to seize a victim. He seizes a victim and drags him in his net. So he is oppressed and beaten down. Helpless people fall because of the wicked one's strength. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He hides his face and will never see. Okay. Downer section of scripture, but really important for us to hear. Okay. Check out what Psalmist says in verse 2. Back up just a little bit to verse 2. David asks Yahweh would allow the wicked to be trapped, tripped up by their own schemes, their own arrogance. And it is here in verse 4 through 11 where, where David explains what that arrogance amounts to, what it is that makes the oppressor so arrogant and prideful in the first place. And the source of that pride, right here in verse 4, is the belief that there is no God. And if there is, he has nothing to do with my plans and schemes. The wicked person, in other words, is the faithless person. Now, you know that phrase, God helps those who help themselves. Have you ever heard that before? Psalm 10 is like, the complete counter-argument to that entire belief system that God helps those who help themselves. And, and in fact, uh, I did a little bit of research this week. That phrase was actually uttered first by a British political theorist in the late 17th century and then parroted by Benjamin Franklin in 1736. And so that's where we get that phrase. is actually from the, 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 1700, uh, the, the 1600s. And you can trace it back even further if you want, all the way back to uh, the Greek philosopher Euripides, who said, try first thyself, and after call in God. For to the worker, God lends himself aid. And if you were to go further back and you were to ask humans at the uh, beginning of time, helping yourself first is a fairly common theme. But that's not the way of Yahweh. The strong person and the strong nation do not find their security and their safety and their provision in God. Divine help is something to check in on when you are weak and merely human and, 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 and useless, and, and nobody wants to be weak and useless. To be weak and useless is to just be human and to have limits, to sacrifice your own personal desires and your wants and to settle for pain when you could have pleasure. The self-help person is the person who uses God as a last resort. 
and sets him aside when he doesn't. The person who doesn't need God's help or who helps himself first is that faithless person. Now, now that I've painted this, this picture of a, uh, a wicked person, I need to make two things clear before I move on. First, there's a temptation when, when, when we describe this type of person, the, 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 the arrogant and the prideful and the, the selfish and the, the, the desire, like the, the led by their own desires person, the person who lurks in the... In the um, in the background and seeks to undermine you and, 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 and limit you and, and hurt you. We have this temptation when we describe that to caricature and fantasize and scapegoat all the kinds of evil heathens in the world that you think are terrorizing you. And they don't have to live anywhere near you or have any contact with you, but, but they're going to, they are, in your mind, the epitome of that evil, wicked person. And so when you read this, there are, are literal people and concepts and ideals and tribes that come to mind. And you go, yeah, it's those guys for sure. Man, God, how do you help me get out from those people, that enemy? David's not talking about that. David's not talking about fantastical images of scary monsters, ideological monsters. David is expressing a literal oppression, real pain and turmoil and accusations and suffering. His people suffered through slavery and killings and labor camps. This is not fantasy. This is not a what-if scenario. This is real. So remember that, that the motive to name your oppression is not to justify your own righteous causes. It is to share the details of your pain with a God who will listen. Now, second, and I always say this, but do not assume that you aren't the wicked one. Do not assume that I am not the wicked one. Don't assume that you are the one always on the margins, always the isolated, always the humiliated and shamed one. Because we live in a world that is, is built by ego. We live precariously supported by our own personal self-esteem. And the push to inflate our own personal value often leads to uh, us to be the oppressor more often than we are the oppressed. Whether with passive-aggressive tactics or just aggressive-aggressive ones, our bent is to be the pushers rather than the ones being pushed to be the agents of injustice rather than the victims of it, to fight before we flee. So take inventory first and search your heart and ask God to search yours. So that, that being said, how does David then define this injustice and oppression here? First, there's this sense of invincibility, right? Verse 5, his ways are always secure. Your lofty judgments have no effect on them. The oppressor says, I can do whatever I want. No consequences, no fear. The oppressor perpetuates emotional and physical abuse on his spouse because as his voice grows louder, his wife grows weaker, and he grows more powerful. The cyberbully exists in anonymity. And so her words can pierce and cut and destroy without real consequences. The spiritual leader can claim divine authority that he does not have from a God that he does not really know in order to domineer and dictate his followers. The oppressor is marked by invincibility. Second, he is marked by selfishness. Cursing Deceit and violence fill his mouth. Trouble and malice are under his tongue. Verse 7. When you push God out of your life, when you choose to live outside of the boundaries of a covenant relationship with him, 
You will be marked not by the things of God. You will be marked by the opposite things of God because you will treat your inner desires as if they were your God. Back to verse 3 again. He says, The wicked boasts about his own cravings. The one who is greedy curses and despises Yahweh. If Yahweh is about blessing humanity and speaking truth and promoting peace, the selfish person is going to be about cursing, which is not here about having a potty mouth. It's about removing a person's dignity and worth, tearing out their identity, keeping them from moving forward so that your agenda can get ahead. You can say very, very acceptable words and tear people to shreds. You can not cuss and not use bad language and gossip and slander and, and, and pull people far away. That's what cursing is all about. Cursing is about putting barriers to people's flourishing and blessings keeping them from living out the identity in which they were made. And when that's the goal, when the selfish person is not about promoting the peace of the world or harmony or speaking truth, but it's about you and yours, then you lie and you cheat and you abuse and you take advantage of people because if there is no God and there are no consequences, then no one is responsible for your own happiness but you, whatever that cost might be. Verse 9, he lurks in order to seize a victim. He seizes a victim and drags him in his net. And so when I read this, I am all too aware that our world is broken. That the strong prey on the weak. That the weak are determined to become strong in order to break down the strong. The oppressed become oppressors. Injustice is not grieved, but avenged. And there are times when I am counseling people or sitting down with victims, some of whom have no idea that they themselves are actually victims. Because of that lie that says you should not be weak. My thoughts and prayers often sound a lot like David here. He, meaning the psalmist, is oppressed and beaten down. Helpless people fall because of the wicked one's strength. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He hides his face and will never see. See, when you are afflicted by abuse or slander or gossip or cheating or some other curse, whether it is whispered in your ear or screamed in your face, that you are not worth anything, that you have no value, that you are not someone worth loving. It is if your voice in this world is silenced. For if no one can hear you, then how can God hear you? David tells us here, though, when we name our oppression, it is a natural and even expected thing to believe in the lie that God has forgotten you. That the curse brought on by others is a curse brought on by God. And that the way that others feel about you must, in fact, be the way that God feels about you. And when that happens, the oppressor usurps the role of God in your life. He takes God's place over you and allows him to rule and reign and determine who you are and how you live. And you feel helpless. Now that's the bad news. I know that's heavy stuff. But we're not done yet. Are you guys with me? You hanging in there? Good. Because this is the good part. All right? Okay. Verse 12. First, share your concerns. Second, name your oppression. Third, trust your father. All right. Verse 12. Rise up, Lord God. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the oppressed. 
Why has, here's that why again, why has the wicked person despised God? He says to himself, you will not demand an account, but you yourself have seen trouble and grief, observing it in order to take the matter into your own hands. The helpless one entrusts himself to you. You are a helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked, evil person until you look for his wickedness, but it cannot be found. Now here's, here's what fascinates me about this whole process, this whole exercise of praying through something like injustice and pain and hurt. The thing that causes the most discouragement and distress and doubt in David's life is also the thing that ultimately does what? It draws him back to God. It's the thing that leads him to cry out to God and say, I need something bigger than all of this right here. The cruel awareness that this world is not fair and not just and not friendly raises in David this awareness that he needs his God's help. And not just help of a divine power, but the help of a father. Right? The helpless one, verse 14, entrusts himself to you. You are a helper of the fatherless. David says, you know, all all that oppression that you feel, all that suffering that you see around you, God sees it too. And he considers it, and he reckons it, and he responds. It might seem in the moment that of, of our suffering and our pain that God is nowhere to be found. And yet it is that suffering and pain that prompts the call of God. Somehow, it is, is this truth and encouragement that, that when you have lost your voice and when you are truly helpless, that's when you find help. That's when you see what, what true overcoming looks like. Uh, there are times when, as a parent, I, uh, I need my kids to understand the weight of something, to feel the seriousness of what has happened to them or, or what they have done to someone else. And, and I have to let that sink into them first before I address it. Now, I'm tempted, as the dad, to just employ the swift hand of justice, metaphorically speaking, and preserve peace and harmony in, in all things. That would be great. Would not make a good movie, but it would be great. But, but the problem is, I have four kids. And uh, I don't know if you've ever had four kids. But if you have, perpetual peace and harmony in your home is a complete pipe dream. It is total fantasy. I'm sorry to say. Um, you can't, I can place all the rules and boundaries and warnings and diversions and distractions that I want. But someone's going to get hurt somehow. Someone's going to start screaming or, or feel left out or whatever the case may be. I didn't get... I, you gave them four strawberries, I got three strawberries. Injustice happens in my house all the time. What can I do about it, right? And so I, I, there are these moments when these things happen, and I, yes, I feel compassionate for my kids, and I feel really bad for the one who only got the three strawberries. But I feel less bad when he starts whining and complaining about it. But, but I still, like, I, there's compassion that comes out of that, right? And and I want to and need to be swift sometimes to correct injustice. But there are other times that if I were to just continue to do that, that I would, I would continue the cycle of injustice by preventing all pain. If my kids never understood what injustice was, then they would never understand how they propagate it in their own lives. They would never know how to discern it or be aware of it. They themselves would buy into the fantasy and they would be in for a rude awakening when the time comes. So if I don't give my children the opportunity to feel, 
they will eventually become numb to all the hurt and suffering that is out there. So I asked this question as I was processing through this week, but can it actually be a gift that God does not instantaneously coddle us all the time? Can that actually be the thing that makes him most fatherly? And it's not that God, like I said, it's not that God doesn't have compassion on us or act graciously toward us. But it's that in the moment, we can have a hard time seeing very far beyond the shadows of our doubts. Because ultimately, it is that suffering that places the name of God on our lips. In times of comfort and in times of prosperity and pleasure, the temptation is not to speak out, God, God, thank you, God, that my elbows are working perfectly and my toes are, 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 are operating so beautifully today. The temptation is to leave God out of it when we are in times of good. And that temptation only grows stronger the easier and easier and more comfortable our lives are. Jesus says, easier for a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle than to enter the kingdom of God. And the reason is because our comforts make us far too easily pleased with our earthly glories. Trusting your father means recognizing that he shares your concerns, that he sees your trouble and your grief, and that he remembers you. And that he acts on your behalf. It is only God that can break the cycle of human injustice because our gut human response to injustice is just more injustice. It is when we take ourselves out of the answer to the problem of our own troubles that God becomes the answer we actually need. The helper of the helpless, the father to the fatherless. And so what happens when we recognize this? And what happens when we cry out for help? The psalmist says that Yahweh listens to us. It literally says he bends his ear to hear exactly what is going on. And then he leaves that distant throne to be present and to be active and to set right the things that have been made wrong. All right. Share your concerns. Name your oppression. Trust your father. Thank your king. That's the last one. Thank your king. The psalm ends with this. Verse 16. The Lord, Yahweh, is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. Yahweh, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will listen carefully, doing justice for the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere humans from the earth may terrify them no more. There's something about David's psalm that gives us eyes to see beyond our situation. To have a faith, as the book of Hebrews says, that is about the reality of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. David says Yahweh is king not just now, but, but he is king not just for a little while, but forever and ever. And because he is king and because he is a good king, the psalmist trusts that he will be heard and that he will be encouraged and that Yahweh will do justice for the fatherless and the oppressed, and Yahweh will break the cycle of hurt and trouble and chaos, and that the terror of oppressors will come to an end. And ultimately, that is our hope for the world. Now, the pain of our, our, our instant situation, that the the things that come and they, they cloud our minds, the hurt and the grief and the pain that we, we encounter. And this is not just, not just passive suffering. Like I, I, I stubbed my toe. We all stub our toes. 
This is about my toe hurts because I got kicked in the foot. Like someone kicked my toe and broke it. Like it's that sort of pain that we're talking about here. When we, when we are, are hit by that, we are surrounded and, and confronted and, and, and beat down and pushed out and sent away verbally, physically, emotionally, systemically, culturally. When those things happen, they, 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 they blind us from that hope to see beyond the current situation of ourselves. But what, what we are encouraged to do is just to begin praying through those things, to name them, to see them for what they are, to recognize who God is, and that in the long run, that that helps us look up and turn our eyes beyond and see beyond the current situation that, that engages us right now. And it gives us hope that not, it, it may not be my relief that happens, but the relief of all the least everywhere will finally come. Notice that when David cries out for his personal suffering, that is timely and present and now and, and somewhat uncertain. He does not know what's going on, what's going to happen to him. But he does know that the God of justice, the God of the least, will make everything right. That is eventual and broad and certain. He does not know what will happen to him. He does know what will happen to the world. Whatever plots and plans of men that arrogantly succeed in the short term will not carry over from generation to generation, as they proudly suggest. And the terror that befalls the oppressed will someday be turned on to the oppressor as they realize that as invincible as they are right now, they are in fact mere humans of the earth. Here's the deal with our prayer for the oppressed, for a prayer of injustice. Seeking God and sharing concerns and naming our helplessness and trusting a father and thanking a king, all of this requires humility. Humility, a re-centering of our universe around someone other than me. Verse 17 says, God hears the desires of the humble. Now if you go back to verse 3, what, what are the desires of the oppressor? They are elevated and boasted and celebrated to the point of divinity. The unjust person goes where the heart or whatever organ you might want, makes a way forward for you. But what if we didn't follow our hearts? What if we followed Jesus? What if we followed the good ways of Yahweh? What if we weren't in it for ourselves? What if we were in it for him? My prayer this morning is that our eyes would, would just be open to see the wrong in this world, and that rather than seeing yourself as a hero, rather than, 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 than falling into deeper and deeper depression, rather than, than seeing no way out, rather than putting your faith into some other mere human, all I'd ask is that you would look to a better Savior. There is another. His name is Jesus. When Jesus comes, he, he upends all of society. He says, the last shall be first, the first shall be last. He says, when you go out for your banquets, you invite everybody on the streets, those who have no homes. When Jesus comes, he visits tax collectors. He sits and, 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 and comforts the prostitutes. He, he goes and he touches lepers. He becomes unclean so that they may become clean. That's the end of injustice. When you choose to die, when, when, when Jesus takes on those things and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to put an end to injustice right now. Not by killing all the unjust people, but by dying instead. I will take that place. 
Jesus breaks the cycle of injustice in the world. So in our church, the idea of living in a world full of harmony and peace, that's more of a reality for us. Not because we think we've got all the tools to succeed. Not because we think we're better people than most. Mostly, mostly because we realize how not better we are than most people. How seriously flawed we are. How, how messed up we are and how our tendencies tend to go the wrong way in all of that. But instead, we humbly come forward and say, yes, we are messed up. And left to our own devices, harmony and unity would not be possible. But because of Jesus, we have it. Because of Jesus, you are welcomed in. Because of Jesus, he, he reasserts your dignity that you have been made in the image of God. That you have value in his eyes not because of anything you have done, only because of what he has done. My prayer is that we would be a people that hunger and thirst for that kind of justice and that, that do not look to ourselves, but we look beyond it. Father, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for the good gift of your son to right wrongs, to restore the things that have been broken, to heal wounds, to break cycles. To reintroduce love and fairness and compassion and grace. Father, I ask that you would just continue to stir up in our hearts those moments. Help us to seek after you. Help us to trust in you. Help us to look to you for those things. And those moments, Father, that we feel hemmed in on all sides that we would lift up our eyes and trust in who you are. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.